To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. That holiday meal is going to cost you more this year, but just how much more depends on where you're eating and what. But come on, what really matters is who you're eating with, right? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams in for Kai Rizdahl. It's Christmas, Monday, December 25th. Good to have you along. Tis the season for big festive dinners, both at home and at restaurants. Of course, eating out typically costs more than cooking yourself, and the price gap between the two is growing. The latest consumer price index shows that while the cost of food at home and away from home are increasing at a slower rate, inflation is much higher at restaurants, 5.3%, than it is at grocery stores, 1.7%. Marketplace's Christian Schwab looks at the disconnect. Over the last couple years, Seth Gerber, who co-owns a few restaurants in Boston, has had to make sure inflation doesn't eat away at his profits. Part of the essence of a restaurant is finding ways to use every drop of every ingredient. Take salmon. It's portioned into perfect fillets for entrees, but there are usually small scraps left over. Can you take that and, you know, make it into a rillette and serve it, you know, as like a smoked salmon sort of spread or some sort of charcuterie? He says these workarounds have helped for a while, but they can only go so far. The cost of doing business continues to rise. The cost of labor, the cost of ingredients, the cost of energy, everything has increased. And restaurants often have fewer levers to pull in order to keep margins healthy. Food, of course, is at the core of any restaurant or grocery business. But when it comes to business models, that's mostly where the similarities end. Just look around a grocery store and look around a restaurant and think about the cost structure of each. Chris Barrett is an agricultural economist at Cornell. The big thing that has continued rising in the United States as a cost for employers is workers. Restaurants rely heavily on them. On average, labor costs make up about 30% of a restaurant's revenue. For grocery stores, it's less than 15%. Stephen Zagor, a consultant and business professor at Columbia University, says for a long time, restaurants were holding off on increasing prices because... When restaurants raise prices, they're not always sure that the customer really understands why they're raising prices. But it's gotten to the point where many restaurants can't afford not to, especially as diners start to cut back, says restaurateur Seth Gerber. Incrementally, you see one 
fewer appetizer or one less glass of wine or just the less expensive glass of wine. Um, I think some of the sort of just open season, go big or go home has started to wear off. He's had to adjust prices for certain items because of inflation. And he says if people keep pulling back on spending, he might have to raise prices again. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Wall Street today closed for the holiday, but there's always some kind of data to share. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. For those who do want to go out and eat every so often, but hopefully without breaking the bank, folks might turn to the nostalgia, and ideally lower prices, of a diner. Now that word, diner, probably evokes images of a very specific type of restaurant. Maybe a little retro with chrome chairs, long counters, perhaps even a rotating pie case and a jukebox machine. I saw a story in Eater the other day called The Myth of the American Diner that looked at the history of these restaurants and how they live in our imagination today. Jaya Saxena is a correspondent at Eater and wrote the piece. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So what exactly is the American Diner and where did it come from? Yeah, um, so the American Diner, I think of it as a place that is supposed to be this great sort of democratic restaurant. The the roots of the American diner really exist in lunch carts that came about in the 1870s, 1880s on the East Coast that existed to serve blue-collar workers. Um, and because they were cheap and because they operated at all hours of the day and because you didn't need to be dressed well to eat in them the way that you did if you went to a restaurant in a hotel. Anyone really could go in there. At a certain point, they turn into physical locations, and that is sort of where the diner was born. Your story is called The Myth of the Diner, and I wonder what that myth is and how it stacks up to reality. Yeah, I think we all know that politicians going to diners talking to quote-unquote regular people, you know, this is such a, a hallmark of the campaign process now. And there there was one politician, it was uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, um, who had gone to a diner in Long Island. And, you know, I, I looked it up and I looked up the menu and just realized this is expensive. And, you know, it was in a pretty wealthy town. Um, but I was looking at it and thinking that this would be a considerable expense for anybody who wasn't, you know, solidly middle or upper middle class. And so to me, that did not feel like a place where, right, quote unquote, everyone was welcome. I want to get back to that everyone is welcome point in a bit. But I wonder mm -hmm. when this happened, this shift from diners being 
you know, sort of the place where working class or people with not that much money could get a bite to eat and this sort of higher and more expensive diner that you saw a politician visiting. When did when did this happen and how? Totally. Yeah. So I think that a lot of it happened around the, you know, I want to say between the 30s and the 50s. A lot of people had move to the suburbs, move their families to the suburbs. And these restaurant owners thought, okay, if I want to continue to do this, this is the new population um, of people with money that I need to court. So you see a lot of these diners moving from city centers to suburbs. I think that's where you see booths start coming in so families can sit together in a group instead of everybody being spread out along a lunch counter. Um, a lot of times, if they had the room, they would move the kitchen to the back so you didn't have to see the food being cooked. And of course, this being in the, the 40s and 50s, um, a lot of these places were racially segregated spaces. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit more. Part of what you lay out in your piece as a huge component of the myth of the American diner is this concept that everyone was welcome, because that was never really true, was it? No, it was never true. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, right, even from the early days as a as a horse-drawn cart, these places would have been racially segregated. Then as diners become more of a suburban phenomenon, if you were a member of any sort of quote-unquote counterculture, whether that's just because you look like a hippie, whether you were queer, if you were a person of color, these are things that probably would have made you less welcome in these spaces, even if they didn't have an explicit policy. And then obviously, you know, you, you see that play out in the civil rights movement, right? So many of the places where these sit-ins and these protests were happening were diners and lunch counters, you know, I'm really stuck on this idea that politicians, you know, will say that they go to diners to connect with, you know, real Americans. And I wonder, given what you've learned about diners in America, what is what does that really mean? What are they actually saying? I think what they're trying to say is that they are connecting to the working class, but to a very specific image of the working class. And they're talking about connecting to working class white people. I'm trying to figure out the best way to to get at this. But I, I, mean, I think it is that, what it is. <laughs> I think that's it what it, it is what it is. And I think they're trying to tap into a very specific idea of Americans, somebody who is is white, is working class, who maybe views themselves as not too political or perhaps politically moderate, someone sort of right in the middle of everything. And that is who politicians want to win over. Not to spoil the piece too much, because people should go and read it. <laughs> but at the end, you kind of concede that even if there's all this mythology around diners, maybe they actually are a microcosm of America. Why is that? Yeah. Well, you know, I do think, again, that the diner, for all its flaws, there is something that is true about where it came from. And, you know, when I go to the diner in my neighborhood, I do see a 
pretty big range of racial diversity there and generational diversity in a way that if I go to, you know, a Michelin starred restaurant, I do not see the same sort of diversity usually. And I also think that people still want diners because for all their flaws, it's the idea of a third space is so important. This place that is not our home and not our office that we can go to for a comforting meal. And I think that there are a lot of diners that do provide that for a lot of people. Jaya Saxena is a correspondent at Eater, where you can find her essay, The Myth of the American Diner. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. From diners to high-end restaurants, as Kristen was saying at the top of the show, higher prices for all sorts of foods are eating into the bottom line. For example, data from the Agriculture Department shows that the cost of sugar is expected to rise by nearly 6% next year. And in the last two months, we've seen global sugar prices reach their highest trading value in 12 years. Among the reasons, weather patterns, specifically El Nino, are affecting sugar crops in Asia. So how is that showing up on the ground here? The BBC's Erin Delmore is on the candy desk today. When the holiday season rolls around, Dave Giambri's candy shop in Clementon, New Jersey, is bustling. Customers come for the candy canes. 38.05 altogether for you. Dave's candy canes are made almost entirely of sugar, and all are made by hand. The sugar mix is folded and prodded and twisted into that famous red and white pattern. As we mold the sweet treats, Dave tells me that his main ingredient is now costing him more. This year I did have a slight 4 to 5% increase on the final product. I want to say sugar went up maybe 15% from last year. He's not the only one feeling the pinch. The cost of sugar is rising worldwide. And it's rising in the U.S., where protectionist policy props up domestic producers. The U.S. is the world's fifth largest sugar producer, with sugar cane grown in the south and sugar beets in the north. The U.S. is also a top consumer. To find out more about that, we went to the land of Mardi Gras and jazz bands. Why? Because Louisiana is also the home of sugarcane. We drove an hour and a half west of New Orleans to visit one farm. Louisiana is the northernmost point where sugarcane is grown commercially. We're about a mile away from the Mississippi River, and thousands of years of flooding left naturally occurring fertile topsoil, perfect for growing sugarcane. My name is Patrick Frischertz. I'm a sugarcane farmer in Plaquemine, Louisiana. So how does sugar go from being something that you grow here to something that I go to the store and I pick up out of a box on the shelf? We'll plant a whole stalk in the ground and the following year we'll go through with a billet harvester, harvest that cane. So this 
It's a John Deere CH570 sugarcane billet harvester. All it does is cut sugarcane. It goes into an 18-wheeler, goes to the mill, and the mill presses the juice out of that sugarcane, that stalk of sugarcane. The mill is the middleman between the farm and the refinery. It's where the sugar cane starts to look like the sugar we keep in our kitchens. My name is Charlie Schudmack. I'm the chief operating officer of Core Texas Sugar Mill, and we're in White Castle, Louisiana. Sugar cane's like a sponge. You have to wet it and squeeze it, except it's stubborn. It doesn't want to give out that juice, so it takes about 800 tons of force on top of the cane to, to squeeze all that juice out. The Department of Agriculture protects domestic sugar production from foreign competition by taxing imports. A report by the Government Accountability Office in October found that the sugar program creates higher prices and that Americans pay around twice the world price for sugar. While the sugar farmers benefit, it's not like they don't have other problems. Last year we had a very good crop. The problem was input costs were, quite frankly, through the roof. Potassium, for example, $198 a ton went to $1,000 a ton. You have to apply that nutrient to the crop, so you have to take that hit. So the more, even though it could be a great crop with an average or even above average price for your commodity, you're still feeling the squeeze and there's almost no way to plan for it. Can a farm like yours compete with foreign sugar? Our farm and American sugar farmers in general will outcompete anybody in the world. We just can't compete against a farmer receiving direct subsidies. Back in New Jersey, Dave Giambri's sugar supply is waiting in bags to become one of his famous peppermint candy canes. He's one of the few still making them by hand. Most of them are made overseas because of the price of sugar and labor. Not many more made in the States. It's a dying art, it really is. As we watch customers put candy canes and chocolate goodies into their baskets, he tells me he thinks Americans are willing to pay up to satisfy their sweet tooths. When prices go up, I just increase prices. Gas prices rise up, people still drive. They're still going to buy a candy cane for their tree, whether they pay 10 cents or a dollar for it. Um, it's something that makes Americans feel good. In Clementon, New Jersey, I'm Erin Delmore for Marketplace. Coming up. It was all about the menu, kind of worshiping the menu, cleaning the menu every night. All about the menu indeed. But first, let's do the numbers. U.S. stock markets were closed for the Christmas holiday. It's busy out on the roads, though. AAA projects more than 115 million travelers will travel 50 miles or more over the year-end holiday period. That's a 2.2% increase from last year and the second highest forecast since 2000. The average price of gas is $3.12, same as yesterday. A year ago, it was $3.10. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kimberly Adams. Even the best of neighbors can have their disagreements. That's true of countries as well. The U.S. and Canada are sparring again over trade issues. After putting disputes over softwood lumber and dairy products behind them, now they're at odds over Canada's proposed tax on digital services. 
The Biden administration says it's unfair to U.S. businesses, but Canada points out other countries are already charging the tax. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer breaks this down for us. Ottawa wants to levy a 3% tax on revenues from online advertising and marketplaces, plus social media and sales of user data. Only the biggest tech companies doing business in Canada would pay the tax. Renew Zaretsky at the Tax Policy Centre says that means... It tends to fall on very large companies that happen to come from one particular country, namely the United States. The U.S. Treasury Department emailed me a statement saying it, quote, continues to have serious concerns about Canada's proposed digital services tax and continues to oppose all tax measures that discriminate against U.S. businesses. But Alison Christians, a law professor at McGill University in Montreal, says Canada points out that other countries are already charging a digital services tax. Austria, France, India, Italy, Spain, Turkey and the U.K., Now, the U.S., Canada, and more than 100 other countries are negotiating a global digital services tax that would supersede those individual taxes. The U.S. tells Canada, hey, just wait for the global tax to be finalized. No need to jump ahead. But Christian says any global tax deal would have to be approved by all those countries' legislatures, and the U.S. Congress isn't known for lightning speed. Canada, like a lot of countries, is frustrated with the pace of international agreement and I think wary that they may be waiting in vain for the U.S. to agree to something. There are worries that tensions between the U.S. and Canada over the digital tax could turn into a trade war. Daniel Bunn, the president and CEO of the Tax Foundation, says the U.S. could hike tariffs on imports from Canada. One of the things that has been consistent over the years in different trade disputes with Canada, um, softwood lumber has been top of the list. Uh, and that could be uh, a major impact for uh, U.S. Uh, importers of that key input uh, for home building. Trade groups representing U.S. businesses are weighing in. They don't want a trade war. The National Foreign Trade Council sent me a statement urging Canada to, quote, focus on the multilateral process underway. I'm Nancy Marshall Genser for Marketplace. I know we mentioned earlier in the show how pricey things can be at restaurants these days, which means if you do go out, what you choose from the menu can make a big difference in the final bill. We may not think of it much, but that menu is often the result of a series of complex calculations by the menu engineer who's drawn it up. Yes, that's a real job. And the BBC's Elizabeth Hodson talked to one to find out how small tweaks can mean big profits. Every time Sean Willard sits down in a restaurant and looks at a menu, he thinks, I'd love to help them. That's because Willard is a menu engineer. He's based in Southern California, where he lends his services to a variety of eateries. I help restaurants from independent mom and pop shops up to global chains create better menus uh, through menu engineering, which is a combination of data, art, sciences. Willard told me his obsession began in his first job in a steakhouse. It was all about the menu, kind of worshipping the menu, cleaning the menu every night. And that dedication paid off. He became the general manager, then went to hotel school where he got an apprenticeship at a company called Menu Engineers. 
Willard is now the boss and says his job is to make sure everything on a menu serves a purpose. Every word we put on the page, every punctuation mark, every image, if it's a photo or an illustration. It can take Willard between a week to nine months to redesign a menu using some simple hacks like putting the most expensive item at the top of a list. We may have a steak on the menu that is so ridiculously portioned at 72 ounce prime rib for $95. All of a sudden, the step below that, the 36 ounce steak at $49 now seems a lot more approachable. He says another tactic is to put specials or high profit dishes in a box to draw attention to them. Boxes are one of the oldest tools that we have in our toolkit. It can drive sales in any one category up to 30%. So how does Willard react when he's the customer? Does he order something different just to prove he can't be beaten by his own tricks? I was out for breakfast with my uncle and I was thinking, uh, I'm going to have Eggs Benedict. And on the menu, highlighted in a box with inverted colors, white text on a dark background was the prime rib sandwich. I absolutely love prime rib sandwiches. The way that they described the item, it pulled me in. I knew exactly what they were doing at the time and it worked. Willard didn't seem to mind being manipulated and you get the sense he respected the way he was nudged towards the prime rib because Willard's a big fan of a detailed description when it adds value to a menu. There's a great fast food chain in the Pacific Northwest named Burgerville. They have signs on the wall that describe Gerda and Gerda raises the beef. When you bite into any burger, you can taste the quality Willard uses these hacks to build menus for some 55 clients a year, ranging from independent restaurants to global chains, and he takes his job very seriously. It can be really significant to the restaurant's top and bottom line. For example, he says if a restaurant has 100 customers a day and they're open seven days a week, increasing profitability by just $1 per customer can bring in almost $40,000 a year more. Willard says when he's not at work and he goes out to eat, he does try to switch off when he's looking at the menu. I don't give direct feedback unless somebody asks for it. But Willard says he can only help those restaurants that are ready to be helped. And the BBC's Elizabeth Hodgson for Marketplace. this final note on the way out today. If you're like me and just didn't have it in you to do a ton of shopping this year, bless the gift of the gift card. According to the National Retail Federation, Americans are expected to spend nearly $30 billion in gift cards this holiday season. Paytronics, which manages things like loyalty programs and gift cards for companies, says about 70% of those cards will be used in the first six months. Even so, according to Bankrate, almost half of Americans are sitting on some kind of unused gift card balance to the tune of about $23 billion. Our daily production team includes Andy Corbin, Richard Cunningham, Maria Hollenhorst, Sarah Leeson, and Sean McHenry. I'm Kimberly Adams. We'll be back tomorrow. And to all those celebrating, Merry Christmas.
This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine, I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.